We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Zot Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Hi, and welcome to Zot Talk Radio. I'm Joe Quinn, and my co-hosts this week are Neil Bradley. Hi there. And Pierre Escodron. Hello. Uh, this week, we are talking to Miko Pellet. Uh, Miko is an Israeli peace activist, author, and karate instructor. Uh, so the topic of our uh, discussion is going to be, as you might imagine, the current situation in uh, Gaza, Palestine, Israel. Um, just a little bit more about uh, Miko. Miko was born in Jerusalem into a prominent Israeli Zionist family. Uh, his father was a famous general in the IDF, and uh, Miko also served time uh, in the IDF. Uh, Miko's niece was killed in a terrorist attack in 1997, and uh, at that time, unlike many other people who, uh, you know, had uh, a family member killed uh, as part of the, the conflict there, uh, Miko's family, um, rather than blaming the Palestinian terrorists, uh, quote unquote, um, he he and his family surprisingly uh, blamed the state of Israel. So, um, welcome to the show, Miko. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Thanks for, for having here. me. Um, so, I suppose, um, my uh, having read your book, and I just want to give a shout out to your book here as well. Your book is called uh, "The General Son." The, yeah, the General Son: Journey of an Israeli in Palestine. And it's it's an excellent um, book because it's it's kind of like a it's kind of like an autobiography, but it because of the, the nature of your um, uh, very interesting life and, and where you came from and where you went to, it's also, it also charts the kind of history of the Israeli-Palestine conflict. Yeah. So at the same time as giving a, an account of your life and, and, and your experiences, it also gives a history of that entire conflict, uh, where it came from, where it is today, and possibly where it might go. Um, so my question is... Um, I mean, there aren't many people like you. So, if this isn't too much of a too deep a question to get into right at the beginning, why are you? Why do you think you are so different um, in that sense from so many of your uh, compatriots in, in Israel? Well, I think uh, I've had several advantages. Um, to begin with, I think I, I had a bit of a head start because. My father, even though he was a general, <clears throat> he was a very pragmatic person, and he saw that at the end of the day there was a need for Israel and for Israelis to come to terms with the fact that they are sharing this country with another nation, that they chose to live in a country or create a state for themselves in a country where another nation resides, and there has to be recognition of that and of the rights of the people who are part of that nation, and these are Palestinians. Mm-hmm. So even though my upbringing and my life at home was very patriotic, very Zionist, very you know as patriotic Israeli as you can get, there was an understanding of that. Um, 
I think the next step was the inspiration that I received and many of us received from my sister after the tra- tragedy, the terrible tragedy of her, of her de- daughter's death, uh, coming out very clearly in a very principled uh, way without any, for lack of a better term, the regular BS that comes up when people are faced with that kind of a, stra- uh, a tragedy and pointing clearly to the fact that these tragedies take place because Israel is occupying and brutally oppressing another nation and there's a price to be paid and that is the price that is paid. Mm -hmm. Civilians pay the price. And children pay the price. And then she and her husband and and her children, other other boys, uh, have all become very dedicated to this cause. And then the third thing that I think I was, I was fortunate was when I, in the United States where I live, I was, I was uh, exposed to a very generous Palestinian community who took me by the hand and led me through this very painful process of recognizing that there is another narrative and then understanding that this narrative not only has merit, but it actually is the only narrative that has merit of the two narratives that I knew. In other words, the Israeli narrative, the Zionist narrative, and the Palestinian narrative. And that is a very difficult and painful process, and you can only go through a process like that if you are surrounded by very, very generous people. Mm-hmm. And the Palestinian community that I met, the friends that I had, that I had made over the years in San Diego, in, in, in the discussion group that I was a part of, um, allowed for that, and their generosity allowed for that, you know, taking those baby steps where very slowly you get rid of your fear and you allow trust to take its place. So that was the experience that I had, and granted I allowed myself to have the experience, but that was the experience that I had, or the experiences that I had, and I think this is what made me um, realize the things that I realized, do the things that I did, and then come to conclusions uh, that, that, that inevitably I reached. Yeah, you, you talk about it being a, a painful experience, and I mean, I, I suppose you're referring there to getting over the kind of, I suppose it's a form of kind of mind programming that uh, people are subjected to about their nation and their culture and their, you know. Uh, well, Israelis may or may not be unique in this, I don't know, but Israelis identity as our identity as Israelis is um, is formed by the experience that we believe Israelis went through in 1948 when the state of Israel was established mm-hmm. and it's a story of David versus Goliath it's a story of the that reminds us of the Maccabees you know who fought great empires fought the Greeks and all of this and and uh, once again, we, the, who were, you know, just a few years before that, you know, there was an attempt to, to exterminate us. Now we are back and we fought hard and we defeated the evil Arabs and just like we defeated other evil forces in the past. And, and we were able to conquer our land and once again establish a homeland in our ancient homeland after 2,000 years. It is so much a part of who we are as Israelis. Um, it's like a limb. It's like it's like to to part from that experience and to part from that narrative is like losing a limb without anesthesia. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's and that was the process that was so painful. And now in my case, it was perhaps even more painful because my father was an officer in the Jewish in the Zionist militia of 1948. My grandfather signed the Israeli Declaration of Independence. He was a well-known Zionist leader. My whole family was these, you know, living, breathing proof of the heroism. So now I'm sitting, you know, I'm 39 years old, I'm living in the U.S., and I'm sitting with these people who are Palestinians. In many ways, we are, you know, we are sons of the same homeland, and they're telling me stories about their experience from 1948, which was not only diametrically opposed, but was horrifying. I mean, massacres and expulsions and ethnic cleansing. And, and of course, right at that time, Ilan Pape and a few other Israeli historians came out with some of their, you know, uh, books, revisiting the whole story of 1948, and they were validating what the Palestinians were saying. So that was the process, and that was a very, very painful process. A very healthy one, I think, but a very painful one, nonetheless. Mm. And um, along this shock, you also described uh, this fear in you that you didn't expect, this fear you could feel when, uh, during your first interaction with Palestinians. Can you describe uh, this fear, and uh, do you know where it was coming from? Yeah, my, my, my sister wrote a book, my sister Nareed wrote a book about the Israeli education system and the textbooks, and she calls it a fear virus with which we are injected as children because we're not born with this fear. And I think, I, I, and I think it, it's a very good description of, of what this is. At some point, we are injected with this virus of fear, and we don't know when it's going to hit. I mean, we don't know, and I never thought I had it. I didn't, so certainly didn't think I was afraid of Arabs or anything until I found myself in a big Arab city with Arab big signs, all the billboards are in Arabic and all the people around me are Arabs and <clears throat> excuse me. And suddenly I am I am I am terrified. I'm terrified of the people in the street, I'm terrified of the signs, I'm terrified to get out of the car and ask for directions. Um and it's and I have to fight this fear, otherwise I'd be just sitting there in the car in the middle of the street, you know, not una- unable to move. Mm-hmm. It, it's almost it's um, it's almost paralyzing. Um, and then it happened to me. It happened to me several times as I was going and visiting people in Palestinian cities and driving through the West Bank on my own and so forth. Um, and again, the more I allowed trust to come in, the faster the fear. Um, are you there, Miko? Are are we offline? No, we're okay. Ah, we seem to have lost Miko there. Let's yeah, try and get back, get back to Israel. Is, he is in Israel, isn't he? He's in Jerusalem, yeah. Jerusalem. Right now. Um, yeah. So this fear he was describing is all the most striking that Miko is there very experienced karate instructor. I'm sorry, I lost you there. Ah, yeah. I, didn't hear, Hi. I, I didn't hear that. Could you, could you ask that again? I lost you there for a moment. No, yeah. Um, it's, I, when you were speaking there about that fear, it, it seems to me that it, it really is a good explanation uh, the, a fear virus that people are injected with and it also seems to me that that kind of a fear of the other 
that that you never have contact with uh, can you know grow in a person's mind into this kind of demonic image that that will allow for the justification of all sorts of violence against that uh, that other. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's true. I mean, the enemy was the the enemy were these Arabs who wanted to want to take our land and they're terrorists and you know now it's even more now it's even worse because now there's this wall and even though. I think rationally, Israelis know that Palestinians have never had a tank or don't have an F-16 and have no army and really never posed a threat militarily. Um, look at what they're doing in Gaza, and Israelis are, are all standing behind it and clapping mm-hmm. and, and asking for more violence. Even though everybody knows there is no military threat, there is no security threat in Gaza, there's never been a security threat to Israel from the Palestinians because they've never had a, 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 an armed force. They've never had a tank. They've never had a, a warship. Yet there is this insane fear of the other as the enemy because we are told that they are, you know, they want us dead and they are want, they want our land and they want our homes and, and God knows what, even though none of it is rational. Look at what is happening now. Not 45 minutes away from me right now mm. in Jerusalem, there is such mayhem and chaos and violence and we're sitting here and um, first of all this, the sense is horrible because it's, there's a sense of helplessness but Israelis the media, Israelis on the street everybody's behind it, everybody thinks this is great and, if they're, and they're calling for more violence um, and that's exactly it, it's that fear from the other it's that insane fear of the other and, and uh, actually when discovering through your book the the great friendship you have developed with Palestinians. Uh, I ended up wondering if the conflict is not between Israelis and Palestinians as depicted by mainstream media, but the conflict is between Israeli elites against the people, whether Israelis or Palestinians. I think the conflict is between a racist colonialist state, which is what Israel is, that is founded on a racist colonialist ideology, which is what Zionism is. And the people who are the natives of the land that are in the way, that are getting in the way. They're getting in the way of the narrative. They're getting in the way of the, of the creation of a Jewish state. They're getting in the way of, the, of, of this uh, promise that supposedly we have that this is our land and not anybody else's. And the only way to get over it is to kill them and, and try to get rid of them. That is the conflict, you know, and that is, to that end, people are educated here. There's a, there's a great uh, just on that point. There's a great uh, comment in your in your book where you uh, kind of quote your your sister Nurit, right? Yeah. Uh, where you happen to be at uh, I think the swimming pool at the Hebrew Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and uh, ben, Benjamin Netanyahu was there. Yeah. Uh, so you were kind of chatting with him, and he was, as you say, as affable as ever, or whatever, and. Um, uh, so a friend, I think, asked uh, why he had uh, why he had, why he had bodyguards around. Yeah, my him. son, my my, oh, my son, your son, right, son. Daron, Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, and your sister said uh, he, that he must have done something really terrible, and that he's afraid for his life. Well, that's what your son said. Yeah. Uh, sorry, your sister said that. Yeah, that was a reply to his to, to a very innocent question because he didn't know who he was. Yeah. Yeah. And she said that she saw it as every Israeli politician who did not end the Israeli occupation and oppression of Palestinians was responsible for the death of Israelis and Palestinians. And she reasoned, and she still does, that this is not a question of policy or inability to reach an agreement, 
but callousness, greed for land, a desire to rule, and a lack of will to end the conflict. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, I mean, a lack of will to end the conflict seems just totally anathema to supposedly what every normal human being would want. They, they don't want conflict. They want an end to conflict in some form or other, right? But you have these politicians who apparently don't want an end to conflict. Well, when you have people who are, who are at, the, at the head of this, of this racist colonialist uh, regime, uh, they have an agenda, um, and, and they are out to, to um, you know, make it happen, you know, accomplish what they're set to do. Look, we can't forget, and this is something that is often forgotten, but we should not forget, Israel was created as a result of a massive act of terrorism and ethnic cleansing. Right. More than half of the population of Palestine was forced out. Hundreds of cities, I think more than half of the cities and towns of Palestine were destroyed. I mean, this is how Israel was established. This was the beginning, you know, mm-hmm. of how Israel... So, I mean, to expect anything different from an Israeli prime minister would really be quite absurd. Um, this is what Israel is about. This is what Israeli policy will always be about. It's what it's always been about. It's been about... Power. It's been about land. It's been about getting rid of the Palestinians, trying to bring the Palestinians on their knees, trying to their knees, trying to get them to surrender. Of course, they failed miserably every single time. Even now, with all this bombing, they can't get them to do this. Mm-hmm. And this is what it means to be the Israeli prime minister. That's what it means to be a politician in Israel. It's to work to that end with varying degrees of violence, with varying degrees of, you know, in, uh, uh, sh- shades of gray. But mm-hmm. within, but everybody's going in the same direction. All the Israeli politicians, right, left, and center, are all and always have been completely aligned on this issue, to get rid of the Palestinians, to kill the Palestinians. Gaza's been bombed for, since the early 1950s, since the Gaza Strip was established, Israel has been entering and bombing and killing and, and, and terrible massacres have taken place in Gaza over the last 65 years. This is nothing new. The, the excuse changes from period to period. Now they're called Hamas. Uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago, they were called something else. There was a different reason. The technology is much better now, so Israel can create a lot more damage with, um, with the technology that it has. But, but, but it's always been the same, trying to get the people of Gaza to stop fighting, to stop resisting, to, to, go down, to, to get on their knees and, and surrender. It's been the name of the game. It always will be the name of the game. And as long as there's an Israel, they will kill Palestinians. And as long as there's a Palestinian breathing in Gaza, Israel will find a reason to bomb. So there's no difference here between Netanyahu, is what I'm saying, and the founders of the state of Israel. They're all following the exact same path. So um, what do you think the end result, or, or not the end result, but what do you think their plan is? I mean, uh, in terms of the Israeli politicians, the, the elite, what is their... Well, what's their narrative? Well, well not their narrative necessarily, but what Call. if they obviously don't uh, want a Palestinian state because they're gobbling up more and more Palestinian land, and hmm. they don't think they're looking at a, a, a one-state solution. So, I mean, they, is their goal to have Palestinians just completely disappear, have them kind of another, uh, you know, Nakba, whether, whether exiled into other Arab countries or killed? I mean, they don't want them gone. Is that their end goal? I think it's important to recognize that probably the three things that characterize Israel and the Israeli government are arrogance, brutality, and stupidity. Hmm. And those are the three elements that guide them in their actions. They're arrogant. They think Palestinians' lives are not important. They think Palestinians are nothing, which is what racist regimes think about the other. 
mm-hmm. um, their, 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 their brutality, I mean, like I said, from day one, they've, they've demonstrated horrific brutality and cruelty towards the Palestinians. And their stupidity, and when you get to know them closely and you're behind the scenes, you know, uh, when you take a look at the details and, and when you just take a look at the lack of their foresight, you can see just how stupid they are. Um, I'm always reminded of the day when uh, F.W. de Klerk stood up in front of a podium and announced that Nelson Mandela is going to be freed unconditionally, the banned political parties were going to be unbanned, and there was going to be a one-person, one-vote election. And prior to that, there was a real surge in the violence against, against uh, black Africans. I think we are. I think this is this is where inevitably this is going to lead. I don't think Israelis right now, even certainly not the Israeli politicians and and leaders understand it. I don't think they have that kind of foresight. I don't think that kind of. I don't even think they have that kind of of understanding of history, and 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 similar cases in in history where we've seen regimes like this. Uh, to them, it's, this is all one country. It belongs to Jewish people. They are the caretakers, and they need to do everything they can in order to make sure that this remains a Jewish state. Of course, you cannot have a Jewish state in an Arab country where the majority are not Jewish. The majority are Palestinian Arabs. Um, so you've got this combination, again, of arrogance, brutality, and stupidity, and, and a lack of foresight. And this is exactly where we stand right now. We're, we're, we're seeing all of these three in play right at this moment. So just kind of stumbling forward without any really uh, cohesive plan. No, for them, this war, this, you know, this is our fate. This is our destiny. We will always have to fight because Arabs hate us. They hate us because we inevitably, they think we took their land, but of course we know it's our land and we know that it's our right. We also know that it's, it's kind of a vicious uh, circle, mm-hmm. a catch-22, if you will. Uh, and they're willing to fight this, to, to keep this going for another 100 years. I mean, they, they don't care. I mean, they don't have any loss. They, they're strong and they feel that they are invincible. And... Uh we can see IDF Israel regularly launching those uh, operations, submarines, castlet, etc. What triggers the decision by the Israeli elites to stop the operation? Is it the international outcry? Is it, uh, okay, we kill enough Palestinians, uh, we stop the operation until the next one? Uh, how does it work? I think it's probably a combination of things. I think it's uh, how they think it's going to play out in the next elections. You know, Bibi Netanyahu wants mm-hmm. to win the next elections, and he knows the more force he applies, the better chances he is of, of, of looking like the, you know, the strong leader that Israelis want. Um, and so that's, I think, that's one big uh, um, consideration. Um, and then they, they, they might be a little bit of poop. I, I think that they, they try to get away with as much as they can, as much damage, as much killing, as much carnage as they can. And to a certain degree, I'm sure at some point they, they, they get a fax or, 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 or notice from the U.S. or from the EU and saying, you know what, okay, this has really gone too far, and that's, that's probably when they stop. Hmm. Or maybe they keep going a few more days and then they stop. But um, it's not, I don't think there's, there's, there's no strategy here. There's certainly no, no military strategy because there's no military um, combat, the conflict here. There's no, you know, there's, there's, no, there's no military risk. There's no, there's no enemy here that has a military, yeah. you know, they're killing civilians. So it has, to do, it has to do with local politics and maybe uh, kind of a wink from, from the West saying, okay, you know what, we, we really can't 
back you up anymore. You need to stop. God, Miko, that it's just so cynical when you just strip it down like that. I mean, you kind of almost want to think they have some kind of plan, but what you're describing there, the lack of foresight. Well, it's like a ki- the kind of reactive, oh, elections coming up. Yeah, let's do this next It's like week. killing Palestinians for votes, you know? Yeah. Uh, There's also another issue. I mean, the situation in, in Gaza, and I think this is why Gaza usually suffers so badly every, you know, for the last uh, 65 years, Gaza has been a target. This is nothing new. Um, there are a million refugees in Gaza. Gaza represents everything that is that dil- that can possibly delegitimize Israel, and this is really the problem. The problem is not a security threat. The problem is a threat to Israel's legitimacy, and no place like Gaza represents the the illegitimacy of the state of Israel. You've got over a million refugees who want to go home. You have got horrific uh, economic conditions imposed upon the people of Gaza by, of course, by, by Israeli oppression and, and, and the Israeli occupation of Palestine. And there are only two choices. You can't leave it alone because that's not an option. They're going to keep fighting and people are going to expect that Israel do something. A UN, a UN report that came out in the summer of 2012 um, was saying that by 2020 there will be another half a million people in Gaza, in the Gaza Strip. So that's 2.1 million people. How are they going to live? There's already no water fit for drinking, no proper nutrition, no access to medicine, no proper infrastructure, no, not enough schools. I mean, how are they going to live? And Israel has no plan. So you can do two things. You can try to solve the problem, which Israel does not want to do, because that means allowing the refugees to go back to their home, refugees from 1948. Mm-hmm. Um, and solving the problem and lifting the siege and releasing the prisoners and doing everything that humanely and, and, and morally is called for. And these are the things that will, of course, appease the resistance. Or you fight and you create violence and you blame the victim. And that's exactly what they're doing. They're creating more violence and they're blaming the victim. You know, you would think that Hamas is at least, I don't know, Rommel's uh, army in World War II. Mm-hmm. So when you see the tanks, and you can see on the highway now, last night I, I was driving late from a friend's house, and you see these big, big, uh, big semi-trailers carrying the tanks going down south. Mm-hmm. Um, why do they need tanks to begin with? But certainly, you know, why do they need, I mean, I think they called up 40,000 reservists. I mean, this is insane. Mm-hmm. But they have to do this. Because the only other option is to try to solve it, and they won't solve it because this is against who they are and what they stand for. So mm-hmm. it is very cynical. It is very sad. Well, if the, if the IDF uh, kind of invades Gaza, what kind of uh, resistance, if any, are they likely to meet? I mean, military resistance in that sense. Well, uh, you know, we can take a look at what happened in the past. I mean, mm-hmm. in, 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 uh, when they had cast lead, uh, that's probably comparable to what's going on now in terms of the, the violence and the, the force of violence that Israel used. Um, the rocket fire didn't stop for one minute. They had to negotiate in order to get the rockets to stop. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of actual combat, uh, they've got, I'm sure, they've got a few, uh, a few kids with, uh, with, with weapons that might try to fight uh, if there's a ground invasion uh, with, with light weapons. But 
you know, that's certainly not a, not a military threat. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, you know, uh, so I, I, I don't think they're going to be faced with much military threat. I mean, they came out, come in with such force with tanks and, and thousands and thousands of, of, of infantry units. The, uh, you know, like I said, the, the only thing they're going to face in terms of, of in terms of a threat is, a, is even a greater threat to Israel's legitimacy and an opportunity for Israeli soldiers like, like Roman legions to, to, to just march through and, and do as they please. Yeah. Um, Miko, we have a call on the line here from one of our listeners. I'm just going to go ahead and take it. Okay. Hello. Hi. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Uh, hello. My name is Zoya. Um, I'm an Israeli. Uh, and, Welcome. Uh, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, I would like to, uh, you know, to comment a bit and uh, maybe ask Nico a couple of questions, if possible. Sure. Uh, go ahead. Uh, yeah. Well, first of all, I wanted to thank Nico for doing what you're doing because I think it's very important uh, for everyone in Israel. Uh, I think that there are many people in Israel who also think the same, but they are afraid because sometimes there can be serious repercussions, you know, ridicule, even intimidation. Uh, uh, Also, in many cases, they lack knowledge. Uh, They often, uh, uh, you know, brainwashed, basically, mainly. They have a lot of erroneous, you know, information and... uh, they don't know how to, you know, to distinguish from uh, lies and whatever the government says to them, and they've integrated, you know, indoctrinated from the childhood, all, all those things. And so I think that it's very important that there are people like you who stand up, and uh, even if you have such tragedy, tragedy in your family, you're still able to basically listen to your conscience and, and do what's right. So thank you very much for doing it. Uh, are you there, Miko? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. listening. Thank you. Yeah, it's very kind of you. Thank you. Um, so uh, I'll give you a little bit of background to my questions. Uh, I posted not long ago, uh, yesterday, uh, image. Uh, basically, it was posted first by Hadash Party about uh, Hadash activists from Tel Aviv uh, they um, put um, anti-war posters on Ayalon, you know, like stop the killing in Gaza and such. And I received several comments from uh, my Israeli friends. Uh, basically, you know, the regular excuses of Israelis, like, for example, oh, you know, like, I'm sorry that people are killed in Gaza, but what other solutions we have? We have no choice. We can't speak to them. We can't talk to them because they fire rocket at us every day. We, we need to stop them. So uh, basically they say that Hamas is uh, radical and uh, it doesn't matter if you explain to them that uh, Hamas was created by Shabak, uh, the same as the CIA created Osama bin Laden, you know, to fight Russians in Afghanistan. So it's, it's all part of the... Um, it's all part of the, you know, the, the whole process, uh, the way they work, you know, conspiracies and such. So I explained uh, this to this person, and he told me, okay, you're talking conspiracy right now. Do you have any articles, you know, that can give information, legitimate information, mainstream information, about, uh, like, for example, Hamas being created by Shabak? Uh, 
do you have any knowledge like this, for example, something that we can give to Israelis? That's your question. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's partly common. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, okay, but that's kind of your question to Miko, yeah? Yeah, also. Okay. I, I, did you get so that, Miko? What okay, go ahead, Zoya. Yeah. So basically what I wanted to ask is, like, for example, there are all kinds of misconceptions that Israelis have uh, about certain things. Uh, like, for example, they say that uh, there was never a country like Palestine. And uh, another friend told me that uh, there are, uh, in Gaza there are no Palestinians but other Arabs from other countries. Like, for example, they chose to, came, uh, to come from Egypt or from Syria, and they don't have to stay in Gaza. They choose to stay in Gaza. They can return to their countries whenever they want. So, so basically, it's like they choose to stay and fight, uh, and it's not true that uh, basically Israel is keeping them in a large prison. Stuff like this. Okay, so what's your comment on that then, Miko? Well, in general terms, I would say uh, you don't have to really answer every stupid comment by, uh, you know, that is made on this issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the, you answer one, there's going to be ten more. Yeah. Because uh, Israel, the, the other side, so to speak, yeah. has, has books and books and books on these, and they, and, they, and they print them out, and they send them to people, and they, and they propagate these, this nonsense. Of information, I see this in America too. You go to a lecture and and you see these kids who are APAC uh, trained, you know, trained by the Israeli lobby, and they come in and they ask the exact same questions every single time, the exact same comments every single time, um, and there's no point in answering them because they are uh, they you answer one and they've got ten more, and it is not really out of a real desire to engage in a conversation. It's to prove themselves right. Yeah. Um, and I quite frankly don't think it's, it's anybody, certainly not my job, but, but I don't think it's, it's the job of anybody on the, who is, um, who's on what I consider to be the right side of this issue to uh, convince these people or answer their questions. They, mm. The books are out there. I mean, we were educated in a certain way. They can uh, take, if they really care, the books are out there. The information is there. The misinformation is there too. And if they choose to believe the misinformation, that's their issue. Um, the issue of Hamas, I think, I think what's important with the issue of Hamas is this. Hamas is a resistance organization. Hamas was created as a result of a, because the Islamic movement in Palestine felt they could no longer sit idle and not be part of the resistance because the occupation and the oppression was intolerable. And the violence, this is the beginning of the first intifada, the violence against civilians was so horrific, they felt that they could no longer at idle and they had to join the resistance. The resistance is, an, is, is in response to something. If you take away that something, which is the oppression and the occupation, there is no more reason for the existence of a resistance movement. A resistance movement, by definition, is in, in response to oppression. So nobody likes resistance. Nobody likes the rockets. Nobody likes, uh, well, any kind of resistance, really. And the job of a resistance movement is to bother the occupied and to wake people up and to, I mean, to bother the occupier and to bother the oppressor 
and to remind them that we are here and we are suffering and we're not going to stop until something is done. Even though we know that their resistance militarily, of course, is, 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 is ineffective, it's, 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 it's a kind of a cry to say, we're here, we're suffering, and we're not going to just sit idle. If, we don't like, if people don't like Hamas, if people don't like the, what Hamas does, the answer is very simple. Lift the siege on Gaza, release the, the Palestinian prisoners, all, all five, six thousand of them, allow the Palestinians freedom, allow them to go home, allow them to resettle, solve the refugee. I mean, the, uh, the answers are there. This yeah. is not, I'm not saying anything that, anybody, that wasn't said before me. This is what we do. This is how you respond to resistance. This is how you respond to Hamas. You don't like Hamas. You don't like the resistance and the occupation and the oppression. It's a very simple equation. It's not a, perhaps it's not a simple thing to do, but it's, it's a simple equation. Yeah, uh, that's definitely the response. You keep bringing it back to the simple. I mean, once you see it, it is really that black and white. Mm. I mean, keep t- taking so, it back to fundamentals. So, so basically, it's not. So basically, we can debate, you know, the uh, details, uh, who did this, uh, who did that, uh, you know, to, uh, till the crowds come home, come home, so to say. But basically, the issue here is about conscience, that Israel is doing something wrong, fundamentally wrong. And uh, we need to do uh, what's right in this case and stop being occupying the country that it isn't ours or killing you know, civilians and doing uh, things that basically go against humanity. Mm. Uh, so, yeah. So, so, so yeah. I thank you very much because I think you're right that uh, it, it doesn't matter what they say because they, they always have another question, another, you know, something that, okay, give me proof, give me that, give me that. Mm-hmm. And I think that it, it's really, I agree with you that it's really pointless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, Zoya, thanks for your call. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank, thank yeah, thank you. you. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. So, so Miko, but is it even possible for, um, as you say, for Palestinians, for example, in Gaza to go back home? I mean, aren't there Israeli settlements on Palestinian land? Can a fact on the ground that... Yeah, sure. I mean, well, some of the cities are still standing. Some of the neighborhoods are still standing. Many of them were turned into parks. Um, but let me tell you this. If there were a million Jews who wanted to come and settle here tomorrow they would find a solution for that. They would find room for them, and they would find housing for them, and they would make it happen. Um, so it's just a question of having the will to, to do this. Of course, there's a possibility for them to return. There's a, will, there's a possibility for them to return. There's a possibility for them. Some, some cases, they can go back to their land. Some places, they can't. Perhaps they need to be compensated. You know, again, we're not, I don't think we're reinventing the wheel here. I think these mm. things have been done before. So, but there needs to be the political will to do this. There needs mm. to be the political will to solve the problem. Uh, and Israel would rather have Hamas and have the resistance and, um, and so that they can fight them as opposed to trying to solve these very, very simple and very fundamental problems. You know, and again, Gaza is a good example. Gaza has been fighting from the beginning and Gaza has been a thorn in Israel's side from the very beginning, and they've been paying a heavy, heavy, horrifying price, particularly now with this brutal and unconscionable siege that's been going on. And in in this particular siege, in this particular case, the EU and the Americans are complicit in this horrific crime, in this horrific crime of the siege of Gaza. You know, it's it's, like I said, it's 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 maybe a 45-minute drive from where I'm sitting, a 10-minute drive from Gaza, you've got Israeli cities where you wouldn't dream of not having electricity, clean water, 
and, you know, basic medicine, if your child has an ear infection, antibiotics, can you imagine? I mean, never mind the horrific uh, violence that's taking place there right now, but I mean on a day-to-day basis, you know, classrooms that, are, that don't exist, schools that are falling apart. You, Ten minutes from Gaza, in, in, there are not modern Israeli cities where you would never dream of, of seeing such conditions. Hmm. Um, and uh, there's no reason for people in Gaza to sit there and accept this. They want to go home, and they want to live like, like everybody else, and they should, and they have a right to do so. Miko, you've been in Israel for many years, on and off. How would you describe the attitude of the average Israeli towards the conflict against Palestine, and uh, did you notice any evolution over the past decades, a worsening or an improvement? There's this, uh, there's this sense of schizophrenia sometimes because when you poll, when Israelis, uh, when they have all these polls, if they ask Israelis, then they always find that there's a majority of Israelis who, who want to solve the Palestinian problem, yeah. make peace, and have a two-state solution. But the, really, the polls, the only poll that really matters is when Israelis vote. Mm-hmm. And Israelis have always voted, consistently always voted on this issue for the most violent, the most radical, the most uh, insane leaders they could possibly vote for. And like I said, from the very beginning, Israeli leaders have always committed horrific, horrendous crimes of violence and terrorism uh, against the Palestinians. Um, now, when you talk to people, it's funny, I mean, who knows what the average Israeli thinks, but we can see that, by and large, Israelis support what, Israel, uh, what the Israeli government is doing now and accept that from time to time they think it's not enough. They, they're pushing for ground invasion. They're pushing for more violence. They're pushing for, you know, and it's, 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 it, this is not really maybe representative of anything, but, but it's symbolic. I took a cab the other day. Um, I had to go, you know, so I took a cab, and the cab driver was an Israeli. As soon as I get in the car, we start talking. It's all about how weak the Israeli army is, how they're not doing enough, how they're not killing enough, how they're not attacking enough, you know, and so forth. On the way back, the same trip, I had a Palestinian driver just by, you know, just by coincidence. And the entire conversation is, how do we get beyond the violence? How can we finally hold hands and live together? How can we, you know, get rid of these leaders who are only thinking of violence and show the world that as people we can get along and we can share this country? And as unrepresentative and unscientific, well, as unscientific as this really is, it is representative of what you hear when you talk to Israelis and what you hear when you talk to Palestinians. Well, that's amazing. I mean, the people who are being bombed and blown apart and having their houses destroyed are the ones who are appealing for kind of like uh, accommodation and reconciliation and the ones who are doing all the attacking want more. Yeah. The ones who are safe want more death. Yeah. That's... uh, It's it's unconscionable. And it it plays out at a political level too. I mean, Benjamin Netanyahu's stance on Hamas was, well... We're not going to negotiate any kind of peace settlement until X, Y, Z conditions are met. But every time they meet X, Y, Z conditions, it's, oh, but there are these other sub-conditions as well. In fact, having met those conditions, you've now contradicted several other ones. (laughs) And what can they do? Like, obviously, in the run-up to this current uh, operation, uh, a fairly, you know, noteworthy event happened. Hamas and Fatah formed a unity government, which had been a precondition to talks with Israel 
oh, we can't until they have, and then they have a unity government, yeah. <clears throat> and they renegade on it and say, no, we don't talk to terrorists. Yeah, Netanyahu would never, or has said that he would never, that he couldn't really deal with uh, Fatah and Abbas because he had no control over uh, Hamas. Hamas. And then when they form a unity government, suddenly there's this uh, kidnapping and the whole thing gets destroyed, you know? I mean, that's... And, uh, but even before that, when the unity government was announced, Netanyahu turned around and said, uh, well, we can't do with either of them now because Fatah has gotten bed with the terrorist Hamas. I mean, like, it's like your sister said, Miko, uh, there's no will to, to solve or stop the conflict. They appear to want the conflict to continue, and that's what you've been saying for the past half hour, basically. Uh, so, I mean, it's hard, in that situation, it's hard to uh, see a solution with those kind of people making the decisions and, and who have power. It's hard to see how it's gonna, going to end, you know? I think it's hard only if you expect or only if you follow the uh, guidelines that Israel has uh, put forth. This whole myth about this two-state solution, uh, this whole myth of Oslo where there's supposedly a Palestinian government and a Palestinian president, the Palestinian president can't, can't drive from one Palestinian city to the other without getting a permit from the Israeli army. Mm. You know, he has no authority. The Palestinian Authority has no authority. He has less of an authority than a small city council. Yeah. Um, and uh, that was exactly the whole purpose of Oslo. The purpose of Oslo was to create this, uh, this um, you know, puppet state, if you will. I mean, I know it's, it's, it's derogatory, but puppet state, if you will, and, and do with it as it please, and that's exactly what they accomplished. So, so Oslo and the whole peace process were very successful because they accomplished what they were out to accomplish. On the one hand, create this image, wrong image, that there's a Palestinian entity, that there's a Palestinian state, that there's a Palestinian leadership that's somehow responsible for things. And on the other hand, create a reality where Israel, in fact, dominates the entire country, has control of the resources, and controls the lives of every single person who lives here. Now, when people come up, as John Kerry did and others before him, trying to resolve this conflict based on this two-state solution, which has been failing for 20 years, failing to achieve peace, but not failing in, in getting Israel to become uh, more forceful and more dominant. Right. People are disappointed because they say, well, with this kind of leadership, who do we talk to? Well, we don't talk to this leadership. What is needed here is not peace talks. What is needed here is a concerted anti-apartheid effort, an anti-Zionism effort, just like was done in South Africa. The world needs to unite behind an anti-apartheid uh, movement exactly the way the world did with apartheid in South Africa, except you replace the word apartheid with the word Zionism. Zionism is today's apartheid here in Palestine. That has to be removed and replaced with a real, uh, with a real, with a real democracy. The one state is here. It's not an option. It, this whole country is one state. It's governed by one government. There's one army, um, and that's it. All the functions of the state are are are, are there as one state. Um, if anybody really seeks to find a just solution, then there has to be a concerted effort to change the regime into into, into a democracy. To see. Zionism fall, just like we saw apartheid fall in South Africa and other racist and fascist regimes fall in other, in other countries around the world. That is what is needed, and that is the only thing that offers some kind of hope. When that is accomplished, as I think it will, as I think it will be, uh, then we will be able to see results. But the world has to unite behind this. I mean, I mean, the Europeans have to send the Israeli ambassadors home. They have to call back their ambassadors from Tel Aviv until 
the siege on Gaza is lifted until all the political prisoners are released, Palestinian prisoners, and until Israel calls for free and fair one-person, one-vote elections that include everyone. Those should be the conditions. And uh, another important factor is the stance of the U.S. concerning the, this conflict. Um, your father depicted the massive inflow of money and weapons from the U.S. to Israel as simply corruption, because in yes. politics nothing is free, so it's not yes. a gift. Uh, why are the U.S. supporting the apartheid regime that has been uh, ruling Israel for decades now? Because it's American politics, you have to support Israel. In American politics, if you want to be elected, you have to support Israel. Israel has a very, very strong and very, very effective lobby. And this lobby has been in, 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 um, in action in, in Europe and in the U.S. since the days of my grandfather, when he would travel around the world and, and, and talk about Zionism. You know, they've been around for 80 years. They've been able to influence all aspects of life in America and in Europe culture and media and uh, history and, and education and certainly politics. And today in America, and to a great, large degree in, in, in Europe too, mm. you have to support Israel to get elected. It's not because they love Israel. It's not because there's some kind of a strategic need for the Jewish state or the Jewish democracy. This is all just, this is all just propaganda. It's hyperbole. It's, mean, it's meaningless. The yeah. only reason there it exists is because is, there's a re political reality in America which forces... American politicians to say that they support Israel and to support Israel every single time. Otherwise, they won't be elected and they won't be able to do the things they want to do. It's like a tax. You have to support Israel. When this changes, as again, I hope it will very soon. I, I'm not too optimistic, but I think it's, it's, there are changes that we can see already. But when this changes, uh, then American politics and American uh, support for Israel will, will wane. Do you yeah. know what the nature of that uh, hold that the Israeli lobby has over, is it just money, has over the U.S. Uh, government, essentially? No, it's much more than money. It's, it's, um, there's a sense of, uh, well, money is a part of it. Influence is a part of it. Um, and it goes, it goes beyond the simple, you know, kind of corrupt money for politics and money for favor kind of things that people usually think about. Um, when you look at the American education system, you know, I have, I have three kids and they went through the American education system. They grew up in America. Mm -hmm. In the history books, in the history books, they learn supposedly history. And there's a big debate in America whether you should teach uh, creationism or evolution in school. There's a big debate in America. And most people think you should teach evolution in school and creationism at church, perhaps, right? Mm -hmm. On the issue of, the isr of Israel, the chapter on the ancient Hebrews is all biblical. It's all from the Bible. Hmm. This is in advanced history courses in high school. It's in the most simple, basic uh, elementary uh, history school, history uh, classes, humanities classes, and, and, and you know, um, uh, junior high school. This is what they learn. They learn, and it's all biblical. So by the time they become politicians, at the time they become adults, they already know that Jews have a right to live there because they're the, age, they're the descendants of the ancient Hebrews. Hmm. They have um, the Anti-Defamation League, which is an arm of the Israeli lobby in America. Mm -hmm. And they have these courses. They come into school and they teach tolerance. And they give the school a certificate that the school is now a tolerant school, certified tolerant school, which is very nice, of course. Tolerance is important. Part of the tolerance course 
teaches that criticizing Israel is racism and anti-Semitism. So these are kids in school. These are teachers. I mean, how educated are they? They're as educated as, you know, an average person, right? Mm-hmm. No more, no less. And now they're being taught that in order to be tolerant, we should not criticize Israel. And, of course, we they equate Palestinian resistance with the Nazis and so forth. So by the time people vote, by the time people become politicians, by the time people need to donate money to political parties and so on, they don't need to be told this stuff. They already know it because they grew up. Yeah. You it, see? it becomes so assumed. That's the influence. That's the strength yeah. of the influence of the Israeli lobby. It, it's kind of a, a sh- it's almost like a shared ideology that's unspoken. It's inculcated to a kind of shared cultural ideology. Yeah. Um, although it's not expressly laid out anywhere, except to the extent that Israel would say, hey, remember us because we're the only democracy in the Middle East, quote unquote. That's right. But and even, the, yeah, go on. No, I'm just saying, there's also, uh, for, for several decades now, there's been a huge anti-Arab, anti-Islam uh, campaign in America, and in the West in general. So you combine these two together, and it's a, it's, it's a huge success for Israel. And uh, part of this brainwashing is at least in Europe, the Holocaust that has become almost a something holy, a religion. How is the Holocaust used in the U.S. education system? Well, I, the Holocaust is used not only in the U.S. It's in the education system; it's used here in Israel. It's used in Europe as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and um, again, most of what is taught is based on lies. Um, the, the biggest myth is that Israel is the response to the Holocaust and that, you know, Holocaust survivors came to Israel. The vast majority of Holocaust survivors did not come here. Mm-hmm. After World War II, there were about 2 million Jews in, in internment camps in, in Europe. Less than 10% came to, immigrated to Palestine, to Israel. The vast majority stayed in Europe or went to America. So it's wrong to say that what is happening here is being done by Holocaust survivors. Most of the Holocaust survivors didn't come. These happen to be Jews, and these happen to be Jews, but they're not the same Jews. So Holocaust survivors can't be blamed for what is happening to Palestinians because the vast majority of Holocaust survivors didn't come, and many of the Holocaust survivors who did come left for all kinds of reasons. Um, And so that is one big myth that is told that has to be, I think, clarified. The other aspect is, you know, there's there's a need for the state of Israel because of the Holocaust, that this is the answer. Mm. Well, the very Jews who suffered the Holocaust and survived the Holocaust chose not to come here. Mm. That means the very Jews who suffered the most, you know, don't believe this. Mm. And this is true of Jews who suffered in Eastern Europe before pogroms and so forth. The vast majority ended up coming to America or going to, you know, just Western, uh, you know, parts of Western Europe where they felt safer. This is nonsense. The very Jews who suffered the most didn't come here. They went to places where there was tolerance for everyone. The answer to the Holocaust is not creating another racist, oppressive, colonialist state in an Arab country. The answer to the Holocaust is making sure that there's no racism anywhere, that there's tolerance for all minorities, so for all people. And I think Jews appreciate that, and that's why they didn't come. Mm. Wow. I think... uh, uh, The chances for a solution to the to the problem, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, unquote, uh, really took a setback after 9-11 because <clears throat> obviously 9-11 was used as justification for the expansion of, you know, American kind of imperial power around the world and really put the whole clash of civilizations um, 
you know, particularly in the Middle East. Uh, it moves it up a level. Uh, yeah, put it front and center stage, yeah. and, and especially for people in the West, in America and, and Europe, uh, that really kind of uh, served to obviously demonize the uh, Arabs in general and this vague, amorphous kind of vision that people in the West have of Arabs or, or, or Muslims. And that obviously then gets, uh, that tarnishes Palestinians as well as Muslims, Arabs. And, and really, it was a boon for, for the Israelis, for the, for the Israeli politicians who want to just continue this conflict because it served as a justification for it, you know? Um, yeah, like I, I think I think I think in a way uh, it's a horrible thing to say, but um, uh, 9/11 was uh, was uh, was the icing on the cake because the anti-Arab and anti-Muslim sentiment was already very strong in America before that, and and that was kind of like a, the final you know, the icing mm-hmm. on the cake in terms of in terms of the, the how this was working for Israel and so forth, um, but I think on the, at the same time. Uh, it's really important to put things in perspective and say, and, um, and I, I was in South Africa just a couple of months ago speaking, um, and in 1989, nobody believed Nelson Mandela would ever see daylight, would come out of prison, certainly mm-hmm. not that he would be president. You know, by 1993, 1994, he was the president of South Africa. I think it's really important to see this conflict in that context. There has to be, well, there is, I think, actually, <clears throat> there already is kind of a, a global intifada, as a, as a friend of mine, Yad Burnat from Berlin, uses the, uses the term a global, and there already is a global intifada out there. Mm-hmm. There's massive change on campuses and in churches in the U.S. The willingness to hear an anti-Zionist voice like mine and others who speak like I do is, 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 is vast and is growing by the day. Uh, divestment and, and boycott resolutions are being passed by churches and by, and by universities, albeit many of them are not binding, but symbolically they're there. The BDS movement, the movement to call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions against mm-hmm. Israel is growing. Is, getting, is, is growing, it's gaining more respect, and it's also got some, some, um, uh, some successes, more and more successes. Um, and there's basically a recognition a growing recognition that there's something inherently wrong here and that pro- the problem is Zionism. And we have to give, give the, the, the due respect to the Palestinian resistance, uh, uh, primarily, which primarily has always been unarmed and nonviolent, but today we see it in the popular resistance in the, in, the, in the marches, in the popular resistance in the West Bank, where you see every Friday, every Saturday, Palestinians in the towns and villages marching and being met by a horrible violence by the Israeli army. Mm-hmm. Um, this is growing. I mean, world leaders, Nobel laureates, Peace Nobel laureates visit them, and, and there's, the, the, there's the recognition uh, that their work is is, um, is 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 useful. It's 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 productive. It's 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 the only way to move forward, and 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 also that they are never going to give up. This is a kind of resistance that nobody can, nobody can crush. They will never stop. I mean, they get beaten, they get arrested, they get tortured, their houses get destroyed. The following Friday, they show up and they march again. This mm. is something that Israel cannot... All of these actually aspects of, of the Palestinian resistance, all of these aspects of the world, this global intifada, cannot be defeated. And they will never be defeated. They're principled, they're nonviolent, they, are, they have a track record. A lot of this is based on the South African experience. Um, and when we look at Israel itself today, at Zionism itself within Israel, we see a crumbling system. Mm-hmm. They're spending millions of dollars to combat 
what is happening on campuses in the U.S. and in Europe, you know, the pro-Palestinian voice. Mm-hmm. They're spending millions of dollars to combat BDS and, dis- and discredit it. They're spending millions of dollars trying to fight every single week, every single week to fight these, uh, these marches, these nonviolent marches. Um, uh, and you, you'd be shocked at the amount of, of, of how much it costs every Friday, what it takes for them to, 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 to come and, and, and bring all these massive amounts of, of, uh, of troops to fight these protests. And they are failing on every front. Israel is failing on every single front. Never mind the fact there's going to be another half million people in Gaza in, in five years. Uh, there's, there's already a Palestinian majority between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. You know, the world is changing, and Israel, is, 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 I think, is, is going to come down exactly the way South Africa did, and it'll be... We got cut. Did we drop Miko, or are we offline? Um, no, Miko just, uh, Miko just dropped, dropped the call. Just there's, a lot of, there's a lot of potential for good in this country, after all. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, Miko, um, one quick question. We mentioned 9-11 that was uh, obviously uh, that served the cause of Israel. And uh, it seems that when you study the history of Israel, there is this recurring pattern of very convenient murders, rocket launching, <clears throat> or suicide bombing. You know, one point... Uh, Maybe it's paranoid, but I started to wonder, since those acts totally discredit Palestinians and benefit tremendously the Israeli politicians, I started to wonder if there might not be some cases of false flag operation, i.e. operations that are allegedly conducted by Palestinians, but that are in reality conducted by infiltrated uh, Israeli agents or Israeli agents funding uh, some uh, Arab sales? Yeah, that's a big question that I don't think anybody will ever be able to answer for certain. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like what's happening here now is very convenient. These three boys were kidnapped, and I mean, this whole thing was so well planned, and uh, there's so many, so many, so many question marks about all of this. Uh, I think it'll be many years before we actually find out, mm-hmm. uh, but there's certainly cause for uh, questioning all of this. I agree. Hmm. But uh, for the future, you basically, as you've just said, uh, very eloquently, you see uh, the tide turning against Israel and uh, basically their current apartheid racist regime where they're periodically bombing and killing Palestinians is not tenable and and can't last. Yeah, I I don't think it can last. I mean, I think they're going to continue as long as they possibly can. Um, but I think the conditions are that eventually the grassroots movements and all the different various aspects of the resistance I described are going to, uh, it's going to be a point where that's it. It's like, again, in South Africa, when the clerks stood up and said, that's it, it's over, basically. There's going to be an Israeli prime minister who's going to step up and have to do the exact same thing. Mm. All right, Mika, well, uh, we're going to let you go. Uh, here, I just want to thank you uh, very much for, for coming on the show and thank you for all of your work. Uh, I mean, you really are kind of one in a million or maybe one in a, one in a billion, maybe, <laughs> in, in this context. And uh, you're to be commended for, for everything you've done and all the efforts that you have made and continue to make 
And um, I just want to tell people that you, you know, people can check you out on Facebook or on YouTube, and they should also get your book, The General Sun, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine. It's available on, on Amazon. It's an excellent read and gives a very, very good overview of the entire situation and also of Miko's life and his journey. So, yeah. Thank, thank you. I appreciate, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much for the show. Okay. Thank you, Miko. Thanks, Miko, and stay safe. And your father should be very proud of you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. 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 So, uh, yeah, we just got cut off there for a minute, folks. We're just kind of wrapping up. Um, um, Yeah, well, I was just saying about the, uh, the idea of a false flag. Uh, operation behind the recent events in uh, in Israel, and uh, you know people are open to it, and a lot of people are open to it in um, in Palestine. As far as I as I understand, a lot of people suspect that the Israelis are behind a lot of the stuff that provides justifications um, for Israeli attacks on Gaza mm-hmm. and to continue the conflict, as Miko was just saying, and um, a lot of people in else, elsewhere around the world that are the subject to. Western intervention in some form or other, and I include Israeli here in, in Western. You know, there's Israel, Europe, and America, and that's about it, right? These days, as far as the West goes, but Israel, you know, you know, I'm sorry, but you're never just you're never going to be part of the Western club kind of thing. You know, I mean, no, no matter how much they, they try, you know, but um, they're a bit of an anomaly, really. But anyway, the thing is, people like Miko do a really good job in going around, and they have the energy to put into going around and bringing the home truths about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to as many people as possible, and they just keep uh, keep repeating uh, the basic facts, which is that the occupation is the problem. The occupation is obviously the problem. It's a no-brainer. It's like you don't have to be a genius to, to figure it out, and killing people is wrong. I mean, you just look at the situation, look at the facts, and there's a, there's a solution to it. Um, and that's very important because, you know, that's that's where the answer is going to come from. If you're going to convince anybody, you're going to convince them on humanitarian grounds. The kind of thing that we tend to kind of not focus on, but we kind of look into this idea of you know, false flags and more the minutia behind it and the more the puppet strings, the puppet strings, and the more the darker, more evil kind of uh, events. But there's actually a, in in Miko's book there's a there's a a story about a guy um, when Miko was talking about his father, who's an Israeli general. Uh, and who was very heavily involved in initial efforts in the kind of 70s and 80s to um, to uh, develop or establish a, a kind of a rapprochement between Israelis and Palestinians. He was part of uh, several organizations that tried to do that and establish contacts. And he even, uh, he met with uh, members of the PLO, he met with Arafat. Um, and there was one interesting story on, uh, on that topic um, about... Uh, Dr. Issam Sartawi, who was a high-level member of the, the PLO, a confidant of, of Yasser Arafat, uh, and Miko's father met him in Tunisia with Arafat. And um, so the, these ongoing communications, uh, reproachments kind of thing between uh, Israeli general, who was, he was also a member of the Neset and stuff, and the Palestinians under Arafat and the PLO. And then Sartawi, this guy that... Uh, Miko's uh, father had met with, he was killed in uh, Portugal in 1983. 
uh, supposedly by the Abu Nidal gang. And Abu, Abu Nidal gang is supposedly responsible for uh, Black uh, September um, for various supposed yeah. terrorist attacks, uh, kind of Palestinian or Arab. Iraqi based that there is yeah, but in strongly in favor of Palestinian causes yeah. and you know speaking on behalf of Palestinians and he was supposedly going around carrying out various attacks he was you know supposedly blamed for a bunch of different things like uh, there was a air- aircraft hijacking in Entebbe in Ethiopia I think um, that he was supposedly responsible for but he was blamed for killing this high level member of the PLO that Miko's father was having making, making these connections with and trying to find a solution. And uh, but it has since come out that Abu Nidal was very likely working in some form or other for the Israeli, Israeli intelligence. He was essentially a paid informant. He was like a psychopath who would just do anything for money, and he did. Uh, and he did stuff in the name of Palestinians, in the name of Arabs that served Israel. Mm. That was at the behest of Israel. And it, it kind of you know so it's, it ties in very closely with the idea that Mika was putting forward there that basically the Israeli elite do not want the solution to the conflict. And anybody who comes along and presents a significant, significant enough threat to their being mm. a solution to the conflict, that's a threat to the Israeli elite, and they will kind of take them out. Or, in other cases, they will create situations that serve to perpetuate the conflict. I mean, this is a, a symptom or a tactic that uh, has been used on many different occasions, as you can imagine, by West, by, by the, the powers that be in various countries, particularly in colonial kind of powers, America, Britain, um, France even. Um, but there was one case that uh, I know of anyway that um, goes back to Northern Ireland in the 1970s at the beginning of the conflict there when there was a, a burgeoning reproachment or burgeoning uh, communications were set up between uh, members of the loyalist, the pro-British, whatever, uh, loyalist paramilitary group and members of the official IRA. And after a few weeks of these communications, the two loyalist kind of pro-British uh, guys were shot dead by someone and it was never really clear who did it, but it eventually came out that it was yeah. the British who did it. Completely. The British essentially shot dead two members of uh, one side, uh, one party to a conflict that was trying to solve the conflict, trying to contact the other side and solve the conflict and see their common commonality, the common ground they shared, and to come to a, a, a peaceable solution. And the British state, that supposedly was threatened by this conflict, actually wanted to continue and kill the people who were trying to solve it. I mean, that's kind of yeah. pretty much official history. It's not in your textbooks, but that's actually what happened. And that's what they've done, and they've done it probably in many other occasions. And the same is true for Israel today. And that's why we... Um, based on what Miko says, it seems to me a logical kind of uh, deduction or a logical next step when you see the extent to which powers that be are invested in keeping a certain conflict going for lots of different reasons, including that they like conflict, but they also get a lot out of it. It seems to me that when you see events happening that kind of out of nowhere or come at a really bad time for peace and at a really good time yeah. for these people in power who want to perpetuate conflict, well then it's reasonable to look at the possibility that they may, may have been behind it and to, and to investigate the, the possible evidence for it, you know? Yeah, it's difficult for us to accept that leaders might sacrifice 
their own citizens. But for psychopaths, Palestinians, Israelis, doesn't matter, these are just humans. And humans are uh, uh, treated with contents by psychopaths. So it's really not an ethical problem for a psychopath leader to destroy uh, tens, dozens, hundreds of lives. Uh, I would like to add as well that it's not because of fast track operation that there is not resistance. In Palestine, there might be some resistance, and what I find shocking is the difference in the treatment between uh, what is going on in Palestine, the resistance that is labeled terrorist, brainless, uh, suicidal, destructive terrorist, and at the same time, if you look at history, like in Europe during World War II, the countries that were invaded by Germany, you had resistance movements. In, in France, you have a few percent of r- rather courageous men who decided to fight for the country, endanger their life, sacrifice their life for an ideal, for their root, their culture, their language, their, their identity, like some Palestinians might do today. And uh, they were bombing trains, they were dropping bombs here and there. Uh, there were resistance, and today, 60 years later, they're presented as, as heroes. And maybe it's thanks to those courageous men that... Uh, those countries are still uh, are not uh, part of uh, a third Reich anymore. So the difference in treatment is rather shocking to me. Yeah, yeah. I just like to say that if, if uh, there's an idea that if the Americans had not entered the Second World War, we would all be speaking German. You hear that a lot, right? Yeah. It's not actually true. If the Americans had not entered the Second World War, we'd all be speaking Russian. True. Yeah, because Russia won the Second World War. <laughs> no, I disagree, because the Russians never had any intention of staying. No, well, no, but, but people might have welcomed them as liberators. Yeah, with flowers. And embraced the, the Russian and culture. And <coughs> what is shocking, and uh, you know, this uh, landing of the U.S. troops in Normandy happened when or after most of the German armies has been destroyed along the Eastern Front yeah. by Russian forces, and the Russian lost 20 million lives mm-hmm. during World War II. They landed after that against an almost non-existent German army. Mm-hmm. They bombed for hours the all uh, seashore, French seashore. They destroyed all cities, killed thousands of civilians, and then landed. And I think the casualties for U.S. troops during the landing is like, 1,000, if mm-hmm. I correctly remember, compare that to the 20 million Russians who lost their life and did win the World War II. And wow. later on was presented as an evil communist wow. and didn't have anything to do with the victory. American casualties are more than 1,000. There were 1,000 at that point in time. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. during the landing. Yeah. Well, do you have anything more to say on this topic, Neil? Or um, I think we we're going to have a, a slightly shorter show tonight. Well, just to say that um, we don't know how long this assault is going to go on. The latest is that uh, uh, it's getting worse. I mean, yesterday a massive airstrike is supposedly on the home of Gaza's chief of police. Killed 18 people, injured mm-hmm. 45. The latest total death toll, 157 people killed. Many. Israel has hit homes, schools, hospitals, mosques, and everything in between. It looks like they're, as Miko said, they've, they're sending t- 
tanks down there and they possibly called up 40,000 troops. That could be for show. They they kind of nearly did that two, two years ago in the previous operation, pillar of defense, whatever. Um, but then, you know, stopped at some point. It's uh, it's senseless, but it's it's a continuous, it's a perennial state of affairs. It's always there, and uh, yeah, I think I think what Nico's saying is is the only it's the only solution, and not in the sense that I see it being worked out anytime soon. Rather, that is the natural, obvious, in your face. He, he has a point when he says that the state structures are there. It could. It's, it's, it's actually, despite it seeming like it's never going to happen, it's also very near. It could happen quickly with the political will. It won't because of the entrenched Israeli regime. Now, how fast will the U.S. fall? Because if and when that happens, Israel is finished. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't hold my breath well, for the Israel as Israel is finished. Yeah. I wouldn't hold my breath for the EU and the UN and the international community in terms of the international political community kind of um, anytime soon coming out and demanding that Israel take action and you know push forward a, an equitable solution. I don't, I'm not holding my breath for that. So in the absence of that, I don't see any other solution with these with Israelis uh, being infected with this fear virus, as Mika was saying. At the beginning, uh, the entire pop, most of the pop, Israeli population being for this kind of a violent response at every turn to uh, the Palestinians and having psychopathic leaders in power and then being chosen repeatedly by these Israelis. Well, I mean, where's the solution? How's gonna? You know, people need and want to, to see that it's going to end well. But I'm given my understanding and my view of this world. I'm not. Uh, prepared at this point to kind of like um, to hope for that or to expect that or to say that that is or is most likely going to happen because I don't know, I'll just remain open to it but in the meantime we have to do everything we can to uh, stand up for the human rights of Palestinians and to bear witness to their suffering and uh, and not to turn away and not to, you know uh, and pretend it isn't happening essentially, you know I mean, I know, so they shouldn't I'm maybe not naive, but I remember during Operation Kasled in 2008-2009 that uh, there was major demonstration all over the world. And mainstream medias were mentioning it. This time, conveniently, the Israeli operation occurs in the middle of summer holidays during the World War Cup. And uh, I thought for a while... The World of War Cup? Well... <laughs> <laughs> I say World War Cup. That's an interesting Freudian slip yeah, there. <laughs> the World War Cup. And uh, who would win? Uh, Israeli has probably a good team. Um, yeah, and uh, I thought there was no demonstration. And it's only by searching uh, through alternative media I realized there was a lot of demonstration. There are a lot of demonstrations. Here in yeah. France, all over, in most cities. Mm-hmm. So that's different compared to uh, Operation Castled. This time, mainstream medias are totally yeah. uh, not mentioning that's, what's going on. So That's the only scenario I can see that would solve or solve the problem or push, uh, force a resolution, uh, is if there were massive demonstrations by ordinary people, and that could happen. 
I mean, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but that okay. is more likely than the people in in, political, in positions of political power in Western Europe and uh, in the U.S. from ch- having a change of heart. Most of them are a bunch of psychopaths, and they can't change heart. So, because they, they have them, because they have none. Uh, so the answer is not is unlikely to come from there, or much less likely to come from there than it is from uh, people power forcing their hand in that way, forcing them reluctantly yeah. to push for a solution. But you know, how do you get everybody who's got their head stuck in a, in a TV set, or you know, are just turning away and uh, you know, are getting all of the information from the mainstream media that is lying to them all the time? Uh, how do you get those people to wake up and to realize the situation and to find a little bit of uh, the humanity that's left in them to, to stand up, like I said, and bear witness to the suffering of, of innocent people who are being brutally oppressed, murdered, killed, blown apart by uh, a bunch of Israeli psychopaths? I don't know. I mean, it's not, look, look, it's not looking good on any front at this point, but um, so like I said, I'll just uh, put it on the shelf and keep watching and Keep doing what we can to bring the truth to light. So, uh, I think we're going to leave it there for this week, folks. Um, a little bit early, but you know, uh, yesterday was Caesar's birthday, so we're entitled to 20 minutes off, <laughs> half an hour off. Uh, next week, we have a guest on, uh, Nick Redfern. Nick uh, is a best-selling, a British best-selling author, ufologist, and cryptozoologist. Um, he's written many books, uh, the latest of which is called um, Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind, Suspicious Deaths, Mysterious Murders, and Bizarre Disappearances in UFO History. Uh, other other titles that he's written uh, are called Monster Files, A Look Inside Government Secrets and Classified Documents on Bizarre Creatures, and Extraordinary Animals and several other books. There's quite a few of them. Pyramids in the Pentagon, the government's top secret pursuit of mystical relics, ancient astronauts, uh, top secret places governments don't want you to know about. So basically a high strangeness, UFO, cryptozoology, kind of all sorts of weird thing. That's our topic next week with our guest, Nick Redfern. Uh, Check out some of his books. They're very good, actually. I've read quite a few of them. They're all really fascinating. That stuff's fascinating to me anyway. It should be to everybody because it's super cool. So... Uh, that sounds awesome. I hope I can't wait good, to change. It was a good pitch. I hope you. <laughs> I hope you. Uh, I hope you uh, will tune in for that one, and we hope you enjoy the show. And thanks once again to Miko. Check out him on Facebook and YouTube, and check out his book. It's very good. The General's Son. Yeah. Um, thanks to our listeners, to our chatters, and to Zoya, our caller. And we will be back next week, like I just said, the same time, same place. Helen, have a good one. Bye-bye. Have a good one. Bye.